Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil E. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Do you have a garden? If so, what are you growing? Basil or rosemary? How about some tomatoes? Whether you're a veteran with a green thumb or just dipping your toe in, gardening can be a great way to feed yourself and your community. But it does a lot more than that. Later this hour, we'll talk about community gardens with a few folks tending them. And we'll learn just how they can serve the public in ways beyond nourishment. But first, fellow Nashville renters, listen up. If you've got legal concerns about your housing and rights, it's soon going to be easier for you to get the help you need. Here to explain is WPLN's afternoon host, Mariana Bacayao. Hey, Mariana, how's it going? Hey, Khalil. So Metro Council passed a $2.6 million grant that ultimately goes to the Legal Aid Society, which provides free legal help to low-income clients in our region. What will Legal Aid do with all that money? So that money will be spent a couple of ways. As part of this, it's called the Right to Counsel program. There will be educational programs for both renters and landlords, so both parties know their rights. This will also fund a partnership with Conexión Américas to do more outreach to immigrant communities who might have some hesitancy when it comes to fighting their cases in court. But the big thing is it will triple the number of housing attorneys Legal Aid Society has to cover the city's housing cases. Okay, now back up. Let's back up just a little bit. What are some of the reasons why a renter would end up in court in the first place? Largely for not paying rent. That Mm -hmm. could be because they can't pay or they don't think they should because the landlord has defaulted on their part of the lease, like leaving a toilet broken for weeks or the fridge is out and no one's come by. So, So let's say someone is having an issue with their rental housing or their landlord. Right now, where can they turn? Legal Aid Society currently has two housing attorneys uh, that could represent renters in court if it gets that far. But there are income requirements to Legal Aid's help. But aren't renters, you know, entitled to legal counsel in court like a public defender? So it's called the Right to Counsel program, but it's not actually a right. You're only entitled to a public defender in criminal court. Mm. There's nothing like that for civil cases. So Legal Aid Society takes all of those cases that fall outside of criminal court. They do have more attorneys that handle family law and cases like those. But the attorneys devoted to housing are a little understaffed at the moment. So what in all does Legal Aid Society do to help renters? They represent them in court, um, advise them in legal matters. They can also connect them to um, rental assistance Hmm. programs. Uh, There's been a lot of that money since the pandemic started. Indeed. Now, you know, within dealing with the court cases, do landlords normally have lawyers? Well, I'm glad you asked. (laughs) According to a recent Vanderbilt study, Nearly all landlords in Nashville from 2016 to 2021 had legal representation, while renters have less than 1%. And that number is actually closer to zero. It's 0.37% of renters that go to court with an attorney. So what what advantages does that give landlords in court? 
Well, they know their rights. They know how the court works. They literally have the home court advantage. Mm -hmm. Usually they're the ones taking their tenants to court. And for some of these bigger apartment complexes, they, they have experience in cases like these. They also usually have the time that their tenants might not have because they can't take time off work and they don't know... You can tell the courts if you can't make it to your court date and they can work with you. But so many people just don't show up because they think they've already lost. Mm. So how many requests does legal aid, does, does the Legal Aid Society, how many requests do they normally get? <laughs> More than they can take. Mm -hmm. uh, they have to prioritize the worst cases, the ones that involve families and touch multiple people's lives. So you spoke with Legal Aid's two current housing attorneys, Karen Morris and Katie Ovalier. And Karen talked about how demanding the job can be. Let's listen. So, like, she was off today, but she still had calls from clients. For me, sometimes, I may go into 6, 7 o'clock at night. But that's because the better part of my day is spent in court. It sounds like they're in the need of help quickly. So what will this do for their caseload? Well, also on the day I spoke to them, Morris, who you just heard speaking, had three hearings that morning. She says with more help, they can spend more time with each case. And Ovaye told me that a lot of their cases have revolved around rental assistance. And with more help, they could better help people who have housing vouchers or are living in public housing. So ultimately, what will this mean for renters in our city? Uh, it means there will be more attorneys representing them in court or educating them on their rights and hopefully making uh, Nashville's immigrant communities more comfortable with the legal system. Now, you originally started reporting on a different story when you got the heads up about this one, right? Yes. Um, I originally wanted to uh, follow a day in the life with Karen Morris to see, you know, what it's what's it like to be um, a housing attorney for legal aid, especially now, um, there were some legal reasons why I couldn't do that, which I am, which I totally understand. Uh, but I got to talk to both of them about uh, what people should know before they sign their lease. What is the sort of common, you know, legal advice that they're giving to people, and what can you know, what can they tell our listeners before it gets to the point where they have to seek out legal aid's help? Uh, so that will be a conversation. Uh, that will air sometime in the future. Can you give us just a couple of legal tips and tricks that renters may want to know about? Yes. Uh, some of them are kind of simple. Uh, read your lease and save your lease and make sure that you go over everything because there's a lot of hidden clauses in there sometimes. Um, so, you know, we have a lot of people who are moving from out of state into Tennessee and they don't realize that renters' rights can be different from state to state. So a lot of people come from states where if, you know, if your landlord isn't fixing that toilet or that fridge, you stop paying your rent or you can put the rent that you would have paid in like a different account um, mm -hmm. that then goes to the landlord after they've fixed the issue. In Tennessee, we don't have that. You have to keep paying your rent even if the landlord isn't fixing things. Hmm. Um, Hmm. Okay. That is a good tip to have. Um, I want to thank you so much for this update. Mariana Bacchiao is the afternoon host at WPLN. You can find her story at WPLN.org. Thanks, Mariana. Thanks, Khalil. We have to take a short break. When we come back, we'll head out to the Henna City Farm in Pegram to hear about some very cute feathered friends. Do you have a community garden? Do you rely on one for your summer produce? Tweet us about it at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Most of my life has been spent in cities or the suburbs. I've been to farms, but I know little about life on one. Honestly, I'm intrigued about what it would be like to live and work on a farm. Going to bed early and getting up before dawn, there's a calming energy about that thought. There's a farm not too far from here where that schedule is a reality. We sent our intern, Doreen Chernecki, out to see what a typical day is like on the Hennessy City Farm out in Pegram. You might have heard that roosters crow at the break of dawn. Out on Hennessy Farm in Pegram, it's an all-day thing. Sometimes they just do it. Sometimes it is a warning. So sometimes you will see me like, what are y'all doing that for? <laughs> That's Ashley Beard. She tends the farm. It's about 16 acres. They've got guineas, quail, chickens, and ducks. Ashley's new here, but she knows her way around. They're my babies. They're messy. Be mindful of your head. With all of these birds come a lot of eggs in all shapes and colors. Guinea eggs are like a peach color, um, and they're speckled. And then you have some that are green, some that are just this deep brown, and they're so gorgeous. Um, I think those are Americana, and they're like, when I say deep brown, like deep gorgeous, like almost like a mahogany brown, and it's the entire egg, just one color, and it's so pretty. And then you have like the duck eggs that are just ginormous. Um, and we have had um, a couple of guinea eggs that look literally like dinosaur eggs because they're like this big. We're like, why is it so big? Ashley has learned a ton since she started just two months ago. And she learned it all from Cynthia Cabers. I brought you a baby quail, uh, a newly hatched quail so you could see it. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I just hatched yes, last night. This is Cynthia's farm. It's her whole life. And Ashley, her protege, she's beginning to understand that. I've always wanted to do the farm life. Like, I've always been like, this seems really cool. And like, she, she's been like, do you still like it? <laughs> <laughs> there are days where she can see where I'm like kind of discouraged or something. And she'll be like, how do you feel about seeing all the things that have come to fruition since you started working here? And I was like, you know, yeah, because like, you know, even after we I first started coming, like the the eggs started flowing like gold and I was like, whoa. And she was like, yeah, that's because you've been like keeping them on a co consistent schedule and making sure they have clean water. That's actually really cool to see like how even just you being consistent with something like what can come out of it. It's helped me, you know, mentally. And it's helped me emotionally because it's just the the discipline that comes with it. Cynthia Capers joins us now. Cynthia, welcome to This is Nashville. Yeah, hello, how are you? I'm doing well. So glad to have you with us. So tell me, how did you come to farming? Like, was this a lifelong <laughs> dream of yours? No, it was not. I'm an inner city girl from Chicago, so um, there was no dream of farming so much except for just wanting to be around these little cute baby chicks that I saw at the Lincoln Park Zoo okay. back in the day when my mom was taking me there. Um, so I don't really have that 
farm life where I actually grew up on a farm or came to visit a farm. None of that ever occurred. I was the inner city girl that, you know, they took us kids that were in the poverty stricken neighborhoods to farms to give us an idea of what it was to be on a farm. That's all. That's the only exposure I ever had. What did you do before you became a farmer? Well, I am a former trauma nurse. So, um, and a clinical researcher. So that's what I've been doing. I would say I've been a nurse about 30 years. I've worked in research about 20, 22 years. And I started raising the birds about 20 years ago and became a full farmer about five years ago. So trauma complicated. Yeah. I mean, trauma (laughs) nurse to farmer. That's a big career change. <laughs> Tell me, what was that yes. like? What was that like for you and your family when you made that decision? Well, you know, I don't think, first of all, I didn't really consult anybody because when I do things, I don't always consult people. I do what I'm going to do. And the decision to become a farmer full time was based on just just going for it because, it, you know, otherwise I felt like you know, you can live your life with a lot of regret. And the goal is to reduce regret. And I needed to see what it would be like to take it to a different level and not be a hobby farmer, to take it to a full farm. Now, Hennessy Farm, how did you find that property? Um, I moved here about 20 years ago under duress. I was having some things going on in my personal life. And um, I came out and the house was, uh, you know, I think there were bats living underneath the deck and it was wow. a pretty hectic place. <laughs> it had been not lived in, but when I walked out in the property, like toward the back of the property were all the trees and the beauty, I said, you know, I think I need to be here. And then by, um, I would say intervention from, I say the ancestors came through and, the property was going to be sold as part of an estate and the executor, the executor of the estate decided to hold the property until I was able to buy it. Hmm. Now you mentioned, yeah. you mentioned the ancestors. Do you have farmers in your lineage? Um, it's interesting. I didn't know anything about it because my city family and my family has never spoken about post-slavery or any of the things about their Southern roots, nothing. I've never heard a thing. It wasn't until I did some family tree uh, lookup for my mom's 75th birthday that I saw all the farmers on the 1800s um, census. Mm -hmm. And then I just, I can't tell you, it was just, I felt like, okay, so they're here on this, on this census. And I felt like they came and said, we've been waiting for somebody to find us. We've been waiting for you, somebody, because we we never wanted to really leave the farm and we had to leave the farm. And here you are bringing us back to it. So you're bringing the family legacy back. That's from the ancestors. What about That's from the ancestors? What about your contemporary <laughs> family? Like, do they help out? Do they come to the farm no. and help you out? No, they do not. Unfortunately, I don't have them here at the farm and it's not because I don't want to. I just sometimes I really don't understand. But then I guess I do. And some I do and some I don't is that they haven't embraced the farm. And 
the farm is something that maybe it's too much for a, a city person to, because when they come out, they've just, the land and just the whole thing is such an unusual occurrence. Mm-hmm. I don't think they even get what it could be for them, you know? Mm-hmm. So you raise poultry. I do. <laughs> now you mentioned how you took that trip as a kid in Chicago and you fell in love with the chicks. What else made you decide to raise birds? Um, it's just, you know, I, I would say that knowing that I was in control of my food source, I'm a major egg eater, love breakfast food. And I knew that if I had chickens, you know, laying birds, they would be laying eggs. I could have eggs at at a whim. Um, I believe that poultry brings you this egg and the egg is this, this protein packed essence that could reduce hunger. It's a simple food, but it's a powerful food. Um, it's an easy food. They're doing all the work. You keep them happy. Um, I just don't think that we realize how important having these, this protein pack egg and what it could do for so many people that are hungry. Just think about it. It's already covered up. It can be packaged and kept cool or not if it's a fresh egg and we could be feeding, I don't know how many people with just that. Mm -hmm. Now we got to hear a little bit earlier, but describe a typical day on the farm for us. Oh, typical day. Wow. How much time do you all have? Ooh, typical day. <laughs> typical day. Okay. What time so, do you wake up? Uh, between 3 and 5 a.m. Wow. Okay. And uh, I try to have that time for meditation, but I can't say that I may not send text messages between 3 and 5 a.m. I think people are probably getting them and going, what the hell's wrong with her, you know? But that's when hmm. I'm, you know, looking at messages and and getting them done and then i try to be outside especially now it's very hot uh at five and feed and water uh maybe find birds that are either died naturally hopefully i haven't had any predator attacks checking fences checking cages uh, uh, uh gathering eggs cleaning throwing bedding uh, you, you just on and on. There's a thousand things to do. There's never nothing to do. Maybe I've encountered a snake. It's, mm. you know, it got in the coop. I've got a, obviously that's got to go. Can't stay. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, got to deal with that. Um, you know, walking the dog, I'm training a, a, a livestock guardian dog, a great Pyrenees so that he will protect the property and keep um, some of these predators down, especially now that it's so hot. A lot of predators are coming for food, the easier food source. Everything, everything likes chicken. You know, everything loves chicken. Uh, but I just don't have chicken. You know, I have guineas and I have ducks and I have quail. We, um, I've got 30, 35 different breeds of birds here. Pretty intense. That does sound very intense. If you're just <laughs> tuning in, this is Nashville and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour about community gardens and farms. We may live in an urban metropolis, but there are several community gardens in our town. My next guest founded one. It's a market garden program called Growing Together, a project of the Nashville Food Project. 
Lauren Bailey is the director of the Garden Outreach and Engagement for the Nashville Food Project. Lauren, welcome to This is Nashville. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. So tell me, how did you get started working in community gardens? Well, I think, you know, my journey to where I am was really following this meandering path. Um, I landed in Nashville after college and a, a year of doing AmeriCorps. And, I, and my AmeriCorps service was at a, an urban uh, farm in Knoxville. And I really just, um, I, I caught the bug. I, I really fell in love with um, being in nature and um, resonate with what Cynthia said about feeling you know, that connection to land and that knowledge of like knowing where your food comes from. And uh, so I moved here to Nashville to expand on that experience. And uh, it was really transformative for me. Um, And then in in 2012, 2013, I was simultaneously working for uh, a locally, uh, a local farm in Jolton and um, a refugee service agency in their youth programming. And it was in those spaces that I really connected with people who seemed to have that similar value of, uh, you know, wanting to be connected to land and food. Um, and, and so it was like through conversation that, um, I, I learned from my friend Lulu and Domber that people in their community wanted to farm. And so, um, several of us worked together and, and, and in 2013, the Center for Refugees of Tennessee um, received a grant through the Office of Refugee Resettlement, um, specifically designed to support recently arrived refugees connecting to agriculture. Um, so that's kind of part of my journey uh, to where I am now. You know, you talked about this program, the Nashville Food Project. It started in 2016. What was behind mm-hmm. the idea for the program that you got help with from the Center for Refugees and Immigrants of Tennessee? I mean, r- really, the idea behind it was um, to create connection and pathways for people to to have access to land and access to resources. Because um, many people um, that I came in contact with, they had uh, very strong um, cultural ties to tending the land and to agriculture. Um, and so that that was kind of the idea behind it is like, how do we create, you know, when I was working in those two spaces, uh, there were gaps that like people weren't be, weren't able to access um, land and resources. And so that the program itself was really designed to to start to try to experiment with what that would look like. How does the program work exactly? Well, right now um, we're we're entering. I guess the farm officially started in t- 2015, and um, so we're entering what the eighth year. And um, we have some farmers who have been with the program since the very beginning, and um, some who we have an apprenticeship program where new farmers are paired with existing uh, farmers uh, to kind of learn uh, about growing food and in a culturally sort of relevant uh, context. So farmers, um, they're, you know, they're ready to go in early March um, growing food and uh, the food project supports in by providing training and by providing market support. And, you know, the food projects also has this goal of um, um, 
uh, supporting food getting out in the community. And so um, we have some produce distribution um, through community partners, like I think another guest trap, trap gardens and uh, through other community partners like Turk and Nashville Cares. And they're getting some of this food that's grown by the Growing Together Farmers out into the community. Um, and the farmers also have a CSA. And then if there's uh, extra capacity, it, it also is sold sometimes to restaurants. Mm-hmm. Now, our intern, Doreen Schenecki, went out to meet some of the farmers in person in preparation for the show since no farmers were able to join us live. One she met was Roy, a refugee from Myanmar who's been farming there for three years. That's a pretty long time. Is that typical? Yes. I, I mean, I think um, we're at the point now where we have a pretty like core group of people who've been with the program for a while. Um, so I think Roy is probably the newest at three years. And mm-hmm. then the rest, you know, uh, we've had a couple of farmers who've been there since the very beginning. You know, you've worked closely with people in the community and refugees sharing skills and tips. What have you learned that have enhanced your skills and abilities? Well, I think on the non-growing side of things, I have learned a lot just about being open to exploring new new ways of doing things and new ways of thinking about things. And that's really, I think, truly transformed my worldview. Um, but in the practical sense of growing food, um, you know, there I witnessed a lot of uh, intercropping. So um, farmers grow, you know, uh, different crops together in the same space. And that's something that I hadn't quite witnessed in my other experiences. Um, and, and I think um, the other thing that I really appreciate about what I've witnessed is just this ability and, and capacity to try new things and, and experiment. And, um, you know, that there's not one prescriptive uh, way of farming, um, but that we're kind of all uh, we're all practice, practitioners, and um, we can all learn from each other. You know, I want to hear more about the people that you work with. Tell us some about some more about the farmers who are there in the program. Yes. Well, I think um, I encourage everyone to, um, you know, seek out some of the, the resources we have, like our, our Growing Together Instagram, to kind of get to know farmers in those ways. But um I think I've been just truly humbled um, by uh, the individuals and, and the family's dedication to growing food and um, and the incredible joy and pleasure that they take in um, intending to the land and in growing uh, just incredible food for the community. Um, and and you know, I think some some of the farmers are my parents' age. and so I think, a lot about what what um, what this program, what these individuals uh, mean to to our community, and what um, just what value and and how much we can learn from who they are and and how they impact our our city. Poultry farmer Cynthia Capers is still with us. There's a mentality of this, whether you're running a local farm or attending a community garden. It's about taking care of your own. What does feeding your community? However you define that community, what does that mean to you, Cynthia? Well, feeding my community means ensuring that no one is hungry. I mean, that nobody has any issues with obtaining food. It should be 
it shouldn't be a huge process. It should be readily available, readily accessible. It should be nutritious, healthy. Um, I grew up going to school hungry and being in class all day and hungry. And I, I hear that's still happening. And that's a, um, a major issue for a country is as potent as supposedly we are. And so to me, we, that shouldn't even be nothing, that shouldn't even be part of our world at all. Not here. Um, so feeding my community is ensuring that everyone has equal access to the best food they can. Lauren, how does that resonate with you? I'm over here shaking my head. Um, hmm. <laughs> yes, I think this, you know, that the idea that people don't have what they need to um, to nourish their bodies uh, or souls, like it, it's just it's unfathomable that we still exist in this, you know, this this situation and and the and the you know what from what I have seen is like we have incredible opportunity to be creative in how we address these inequities of land and food access. And, you know, it's not like we don't have potential land in Nashville. Um, in, in 2017, there was a food system assessment that named that in our city, we have over 108,000 acres zoned for agricultural use. And that's just the ones that are already zoned for agricultural use, um, you know, growing together is growing on a, an urban lot in, in um, behind a church. Like there's so many different spaces that we could be, um, you know, th that could be utilized to, to, to come up with creative solutions so that people do not, so people have what they need in order to meet their needs. Cynthia, after 20 years of doing this, why are you yes. keeping at it? Why do you keep at it? <laughs> I ask myself that every morning when <laughs> I come out and deal with those birds and what it means, because it's uh, tough. It's a manual labor. Uh, raising poultry is a livestock, so it's not the same as doing a produce. Um, you have to, you, you know, your vacations and your time off is limited to none. And, um, but, you know, as a trauma nurse, I gave back to a certain group of people and situations. In this way, I'm giving back. It's, um, maybe my life was supposed to be doing just that. Um, it, it, it's humbling and it's beautiful and it's tough and it's hard and it's crazy. And there's so many things, but there's still joy for me. Mm -hmm. So that's why I continue to do it. So with what are your hopes for how we can sustain ourselves, whether with shopping local through farms like yours or leaning on our neighborhood community gardens? My hope is that farmers um, get the respect that they're due, um, that they are also heroes to our world. Without them, you wouldn't have. I am hopeful that we have funding that comes to farmers that is necessary for them to be sustained and that it's not as difficult as it can be to get things, uh, programs or monies toward them. 
I am hopeful that when a student or a person says they want to become an agricultural science major, that they don't regret it, that we are pushing them to do that, that they know that they will find work and be able to live from the income that they get from being in agriculture. Um, as you can tell, I'm very passionate about it because I see people making decisions away from it because they know they can't survive it. Mm. And that should not be. That is farmer Cynthia Capers of Hennessy Farms in Pegram. She was joined by Lauren Bailey from the Nashville Food Projects. Thanks to you both for being with us today. We have to take a quick break. When we return, we'll continue our conversation about community gardens and learn about their benefits for the public. Do you have a plot at a community garden? What are you growing? Tweet us at This Is Nashville. We'll be right back. Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Growing your own food and livestock is such a significant part of so many cultures all around the world. A lot of those cultures are represented right here in Nashville. The foods we grow and the way we grow them can vary. And the gardening itself can serve us in ways that extend beyond nourishing our bodies. I'd like to welcome my next guest, Vanderbilt professor Avery Dickens de Giron, who runs the Center for Latin American Studies. Welcome to This is Nashville. Hi, thanks so much for having me. A pleasure to have you with us. So you study ethnobotany. Can you explain to us what that is? Yeah, so ethnobotany is the study of the relationship between people and plants. And so um, what our garden focuses on is how people use plants as medicines and how they use plants as foods. Um, it can also include using plants as shelter, dyes, and so on. So it's this relationship between humans and plants and all the ways we can help each other, right? Exactly. So what's the significance of the Latin American expression of ethnobotany? So the Latin American, well, our garden here at Vanderbilt, um, we have about 50 plants that are native to Latin America. And um, almost all of them that we have in the garden are used for different um, medicinal purposes. They're used for culinary purposes. And so we try to um, share that knowledge uh, that the plants bring to talk about a variety of topics um, that we can use here on campus with our students and faculty at Vanderbilt, but we also have a large public engagement program um, and do workshops that feature the plants um, for teachers in Metro Nashville Public Schools. Now, you were talking about this garden. It's the Latin American Botanical Garden at Vanderbilt. This sounds absolutely amazing. Can you tell us more about it? Yeah, so the garden, um, it's, it's not, you know, it's, it's fairly, it's fairly small. So it will take you, if you come, you know, tour it, it's more like a 30 minute tour. Um, it's not something that would take two hours. It's located on the Western edge of Vanderbilt's campus. So you can actually see it from 31st Avenue North. Um, 
it's it's located between uh, Dudley Avenue and Wellington Avenue. And so as at kind of as 31st turn curves around and turns into Blakemore, that's where the garden is located. And uh, we founded it in 2017. And so this is its sixth summer. It's in bloom from June to October. And each year we're trying to essentially expand it and improve upon it, both um, as an educational resource and just its infrastructure. So uh, last year we, we got some grant funding to add a fence to it. So now it's you know marked off as this you know, really nice garden space. Um, and a few months ago, we just had new paths um, installed. And those are really to help us invite the public to come in and look at the plants in the garden. Uh, coming soon, we will have signage telling you, you know, a little bit about the garden itself. Um, and then we have uh, nameplates for each plant so that, you know, visitors can come and you know, learn the, the scientific name of the plant, learn the common name of the plant, where the plant grows geographically in, in Latin America. And then um, we have QR codes that will be on these, these nameplates so that you can use your phone to link up to our database and learn more about the plants. Now, you mentioned that you, had, you all are growing 50 species of plants native to Latin America. Can you tell me what are some of those plants? Yeah, I'd love to. So it's 50 species. It's one of those things when uh, you were talking previously with your, your guest, uh, one of the things, you know, that's really interesting working in a garden is as part of nature and it, it really evolves over time. So we have some come and some go. Um, but one of the one of the ones that I can share with you that's probably not familiar to people um, is called the scientific name of the plant is Acmella oleraceae. And this is a plant that's native to Brazil, to the Amazonian region. And uh, in English, it's called people call it we'll call it the toothache plant or buzz buttons. Um, the local name of it is Jumbu. And it's got these really pretty yellow flowers that grow in these ball-shaped clusters. And if you take a pinch of the flowers and put them on the inside of your mouth, it'll make your gums go numb. And so mm. hence the name toothache plant. It serves as a numbing sort of um, plant and is, is used to treat toothache. It can be effective against sore throats. Um, the plant can also be eaten, but this is the one that's really fun to share with, um, with our younger students. This morning I was giving a tour to fifth and sixth graders and they thought this was really um, fascinating and interesting, but it shows how plants um, can be effective medicines for, for primary sorts of um, care. You mentioned that public engagement is a part of this concept. Would you say it's a community garden? Yeah, it's a community garden, I would say, in a different sense. So it's not a community garden where we have um, different people, you know, planting plants and harvesting them. But certainly it is a community garden in the in the sense that we want people to come experience the garden. We want people to come learn about the plants. We want people to share the knowledge that they have from their cultures Um with others about these plants. So one thing that's been uh, very interesting for me 
we have, I, I have a lot of um, high school students that come tour the garden either um, through their schools or through programs at Vanderbilt that are partnerships with MMPS. Hmm. And, you know, several of the students that come through will recognize some of the plants that their families are growing um, in their homes or that family members use in cooking. And so generally these are students of um, Latin American heritage or from Latin America that recognize these plants. And so I always learn, you know, from them, um, from their stories and their their individual experiences, you know, it, it really teaches me more about the plants um, every year. You know, every time I give a tour, I learn something um, as well as people sharing their different perspectives of what they see or what they smell of the different plants. So in that way, you know, yes, it's a community garden and something that we certainly want people to come um, to come check out and experience. My next guest is a pioneer in community gardens. Donald Frost is the site manager for Tap Garden. He joins us now. Don, Trap Garden. Don, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. So what's the idea behind Trap Garden? So, I mean, the idea behind Trap Garden is really to help build, sustain and empower food sensitive communities by assisting with the creation of community gardens and promotion of healthy eating and lifestyles. So what sets it apart? So what sets it apart as Trap Garden is our ability to engage with the community. A lot of the ways that we choose to engage with the community is doing surveys and finding information about the community to service that and also making the excitement about the events, right? We're going to bring our big truck that we have coming out to the communities with a great opportunity for teammates and people to engage with the truck and have those experiences. And also the opportunities that we bring when it comes with our community engagement when it deals with um, growing the foods that make sense in those communities. So after those surveys come through, we make sure that we assess the food that's going to be grown in those communities to make sure they're contributing to those communities. You know, I saw you nodding along as Avery was talking about public engagement. Is that a big part of this for you? It is a huge part of our organization. So in the past, we normally hosted community garden centers throughout Nashville, focusing on some of those points of those food deserts in North Nashville and South Nashville. So we had places and locations for community members to not only access uh, places to grow their own food or also engage with others to learn about food and also those other team um, teammates uh, trap garden teammates that come out to share their experiences post pandemic we started taking this excitement out to the community right uh, going to those different locations to enhance the garden communities that we have here in nashville now you mentioned north nashville and south nashville as being food deserts and we know that there are a lot of nashvillians who are experiencing food insecurity what areas in the city that are really affected the most? So as of 2020, we have four major areas in Nashville that have been identified as food deserts. Those areas are North Nashville, East Nashville, Edge Hill, and South Nashville. Mm. Now, how can community gardens ameliorate some of the problems of food insecurity? A lot of ways, by sharing information and continuing to share the access. One thing that we do with Trap Garden, we have a uh, a garden locator, a community garden locator. So we partner with a lot of the community gardens that we have here in Nashville because it's just not about our location, right? Mm -hmm. We have a place where you can come to trapgarden.org, log in, and look up what community gardens in your area and also get a chance to access food that may be a little bit closer to you and also opportunities that may be closer to you as well. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil e. Colonna. We're talking this hour about community gardens. My guests are Donald Frost from Trap Garden and Professor Avery Dickens de Giron, who runs an ethnobotanical garden at Vanderbilt. So, 
You know, I think it's pretty clear that community gardens alone can't fix this problem. What would you like to see from the city to support community gardens? Don? We'll continue to enhance the infrastructure that we have with community gardens, um, creating more spaces where we can have land opportunities for uh, community gardens, for 5013Cs and nonprofits to operate, and also continue to partner what we have with a lot of our local businesses. I think that partnership with the community and some of our local businesses is really being a real tag team competition, uh, combination for us to be successful. Okay, now, Avery, you know, you were talking about the plants and herbs that provide medicinal benefits you know, what was the reaction of the people as they learn what a garden can provide to them? Oh, I think people are just fascinated by all of the different uses of plants. Um, again, I, I give a lot of, I talk to kids, you know, a lot, give tours to them. And, you know, they think on on way different, way, way out of the box, right? How, do, how, how plants can be used. Um, and I think it's something that people generally are very open to. It's something that, you know, it's part of our culture using teas to alleviate colds and so on, but it just takes it to another level of plants have so many different uses and the different foods, the different fruits, um, the different taste of the herbs that can be used. Um, I'm always surprised by how willing and adventurous people are to try things and smell things that they haven't experienced before. Um, and they they generally like it. Most of the things that, that we have in this particular garden are things that um, you would want to taste. So I think it really encourages openness, um, which I think is a wonderful thing in, in our um, increasingly diverse city. Now, I've one of I have a sibling who lives outside of the country. And as the pandemic has been going on, she's very knowledgeable about this. And she's gone around to pick flowers and plants that have antiviral properties. And she's been using that to help keep COVID-19 at bay. Don, do people make medicinal use out of what they grow at the Trap Garden? We've heard of multiple types of uses from some of our teammates that participate at Trap Garden. Um, majority of them are for food-related access, but it's also a lot of those uh, gardeners do use some of those for medicinal items. And so there's definitely a lot of anti-inflammatory items that are available to grow in the garden, especially what we talked a little bit earlier, this cultural experience of tea. Right. Uh, one of my early experiments in the garden, I was trying to grow my own tea out there and started with a little bit of mint. And the mint goes a long way for a lot of healthy benefits. Yeah. Um, what is community participation like? Like, have you all had to change your approach at all due to the pandemic? Yes. Um, originally, Track Garden, we would have events and we have a lot of people out there, right? We're going to bring our big truck. We're going to bring all our community partners and have huge events out there to our community garden spaces. Now, as we learned a little bit with the pandemic, we're trying to transition a little bit so we can go out to uh, these garden spaces to meet people where they are and then do a little bit of uh, infrastructure changing of um, getting information early on about how many people we can have at this event. Uh, asking questions about access needs for those teammates who may have different um, abilities to access certain parts of the garden and making sure that we're able to connect with them. So we went and partnered with another group to get a truck so we can go out to our community versus having our community come to us. Have you found more people are interested in what Trap Garden and other community gardens are providing? Yes, it's one of those great tools. Again, with the Garden Locator app, we found that other, other, other locations have reached out to us uh, to kind of partner and engage. And so uh, August 11th, we're going to have an event at the Magruder Garden Center, right? We're going to have a partnership there. And so that is also talking about the infrastructure of Trap Garden, our community feel and approach on how people can connect with us. 
so we can actually enhance the gardening community as a whole. We heard from farmer Cynthia Capers earlier about this being a labor of love. So what drew you to this? I wanted to change the way I was eating. Um, It's one of those opportunities to where uh, I was in the Kroger grocery store and I wanted to change the way I was eating. I think I was looking at cherry tomatoes or something like that. And during that time, it was quite costly to uh, maintain a healthy diet for me. And I was walking out of the store and I saw some seed packets and I was like, it's like $1.38. I can possibly grow my own food. Mm -hmm. Um, And so from there, uh, I went to Strosso Media. Uh, took a picture, talked about my journey, and they connected me with Rob Horton, who runs Trap Garden. And Rob was that perfect partner that you would ask for. Because I started off as a community member, partnered with Rob and Kanita Hutchinson, and we were able to form together to get educated, um, secure spaces, and also share information with our community. But the best part about it is creating those future leaders uh, with a lot of our programmers that we have with our local um, elementary schools here in Davidson County. Now, Avery... How would you, we have like about a minute left. How would you like to see community gardens expand? Yeah, I think um, just going back to what Donald was saying, just more space, having more spaces um, dedicated to gardens in the city is probably, you know, the starting point and funding and people engaged in them to maintain them. Because as, as we've all noticed, this is a lot of work. It goes on early in the morning. Um, It's been so dry lately. We've all, I'm sure, been spending a lot of time watering the plants. And so um, I think it starts with space. Don, what do you want to see? I think I think on the other side of space and just talking through that labor of love of watering your garden in the summertime, some way for we can do some water conservation, right? So we can have a way for these local gardens to have access to water, to actually water the food that we have in the communities. In my experiences, as we work with other garden communities, sometimes that's a challenge. Once you do secure the space, A, to maintain the space and then keep it watered. I want to thank you both so much for joining us. That is Donald Frost, site manager at Trap Garden, and Professor Avery Dickens de Giron, executive director for the Center of Latin American Studies at Vanderbilt. Thanks again to you both for being with us today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, look to the sky and you'll see hundreds of migrating bird species. How can we better host? How can we be better host to our winged friends who are just passing through? This is Nashville is a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, and Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. Shout out to our intern, Doreen Schernecki, the masterminds behind our music, are LaRange and Namir Blade. The conversation doesn't end here. Tweet us at This Is Nashville. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and tell us what you want from our show by filling out our quick survey online. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody. And be good to each other.